All right. Well, that worked. We were hoping that would kind of get you back in your seats, and it did just that. All right. It's better than me being up here for five minutes yelling at you. Um, welcome. So glad that you're here and uh, that you've joined us for worship this morning. Again, my name is Doug, and I'm the campus pastor at East Campus, and it's just a joy to be together. As um, Lynn prayed, Lynn, where's Lynn at? Is he in here again? Okay, Lynn, brother, thank you for that prayer. That was just, it's so good to just be prayed for like that by you. So thank you, brother. Um, as he was praying, he, he mentioned Faith Academy this past weekend. And uh, Thursday, for many of you who have been praying, um, just want to thank you for the, ce- the celebration that we had in this room Thursday night. Many of you helped, served, uh, attended. Uh, it was just a, it was a wonderful celebration of God's faithfulness. So just want to thank you so much for all those that uh, put in some time and energy to make that thing happen. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Faith Academy pursued accreditation. It's a school that's accredited through Christian Schools International. As a part of the accreditation process, one of the things that we had to do as a team was to develop what's called learner goals. Learner goals. Essentially, what they asked us to do was to dream of, consider the type of scholar that we want to produce at Faith Academy to, to describe that scholar, to essentially sort of paint a picture of what that scholar would look like. It was a wonderful practice as we dreamed about the type of adults, the type of disciples, the type of scholars that we wanted to be not just walking through the halls of Faith Academy, but to be sort of releasing into the broader community upon a graduation from the school. It was a wonderful opportunity to paint a picture and sort of dream together of what those scholars would look like. Now, as you can imagine, as a part of this accreditation process, everything sort of flowed from that description. That portrait that we painted of the scholar that we wanted them to look like and to be the description of what we wanted to be sort of produced in their life, it gave shape and form to everything we do as a school from our leadership structure to our academic programming to the way we spend money to the curriculum that we select in the classrooms, even to the type of language that we have here at the school. It it informed everything that we do as a school. Well, here's the deal. We're in a series right now where we're doing essentially as a church a very similar thing. Over the next couple of weeks, what we're gonna present to you is a picture of what a disciple looks like. This is, uh, this is a very significant thing. And much like how we do for the school, the idea is that everything we do as a church, sort of the, the ministries we say yes and no to, the way that we spend money, the uh, type of programs that we have here, the way Sunday morning looks, all of this stuff would, would, would produce this disciple, this picture of a disciple. Um, our vision of a church uh, Sean, you can put it up there real quick. Our vision of a church, we went through this a number of, of uh, a couple years ago, is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. This should not be surprising. This is simply what the Bible tells us to do. As we sort of zero in and add more language to it, what does it mean for us specifically here and sort of how do we do that? Our unique sort of mission is that we want to bring glory to God through the whole church, forming whole disciples for the good of all people. That's our mission. You'll notice the language there, whole church. Everyone's involved. It takes the whole church to form whole disciples. We're not interested in sort of half-baked disciples. We want whole disciples, okay? And our dream is, is that as we describe and define what a whole disciple is, that it will inform, again, every aspect of what we do around here as a church. So what is 
a whole disciple. As I mentioned before, there are bookmarks in the back. Really encourage you on your way out to take this. We want, we want these words to just sort of be embedded in our DNA as a people. We want them to be front and center in our minds and, and things that we can just recite together. So take a, take a bookmark or a couple of them as you, as you leave here this morning. But what is a whole disciple? A disciple is, there it is, a forgiven child of God who's taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and to live Jesus. I'll say it one more time. What's a disciple? It's a forgiven child of God who's taking the next step to learn Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live Jesus. Now, if you look at the definition, what you're gonna see is you're gonna see essentially two parts to this definition, two parts. The first part tells us who a disciple is. And then the second part tells us what a disciple does. Who a disciple is and what a disciple does. It's so crucial for us to see these two parts and how they relate to one another. Now, just a word of caution before we sort of dive in this morning. When we talk about discipleship, when we spend time and energy and effort talking about what a disciple looks like, it is not uncommon for us to find ourselves giving the majority of our time and attention focusing on what a disciple does. If we're not careful, it can simply sound like one challenge after another. What's a disciple? It's somebody who should pray more. A disciple is somebody who should read more, give more, share more, serve more, do more, 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 do, do, do. If we're not careful, when we talk about discipleship, it can sound a lot like that. Now, certainly, there is room for challenge, there's room for exhortation, for command. Disciple, being a disciple, it means to obey. And while being a disciple certainly does not mean less than that, what I want to make clear this morning is that it is a whole lot more. And it's careful, for, we have to be very careful not to forget that. If we're not, we can sound, we can make discipleship sound more like Pharisees who want to just tie up and place a bunch of burdens, heavy loads on people, and less like a Jesus who says, come to me, learn from me, and you will find rest. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, that's what we're after. Matthew 11, even just what I quoted right there, what you'll notice is that you'll see these two dynamics at play. Activity, learning from, taking Jesus' yoke, and identity, coming to, giving up, handing over, collapsing in the arms of Jesus. See, the big idea for today, what I want to focus on, if you haven't figured it out by now, I want to focus on the first part of this definition, who a disciple is. For the weeks that will follow, we will spend a good chunk of our time considering together what it is a disciple does. But there is a huge danger if we get it backwards. If we begin with what a disciple does, 
we run the risk of believing a lie that our identity flows primarily from our activity. And that's a huge, huge risk. And we don't want to, we don't want to take that one. That's a danger, okay? The big idea for today is that being comes before doing. Just write that simple phrase down if you're somebody to take notes. Being comes before doing. It's who we are that determines what we do. Our identity informs and shapes and directs our activity. Where we find our belonging, it's right there that determines our behavior, okay? It's the first half of the definition, a forgiven child of God. What's a disciple? A forgiven child of God. Now, to help us sort of see this this morning, we're going to look at just two simple verses found in Ephesians chapter five. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. You could take them out, open them up on your device, or there are some in the chair racks ahead of you. You could pull one of those out. Ephesians chapter five. And we're just gonna look at two simple verses, verses one and two right there in Ephesians. Now, I wanna give you a sense of sort of what's going on in the text. We've been walking through the book of Acts since it's been building on each other sort of one week after another. And right now, we're sort of just parachuting into the middle of a book, a really glorious, wonderful book. I wanna give you a sense of sort of what's happening, set the stage. These two verses are found in um, what's kind of referred to as the practical section of the book of Ephesians. And there's two main sections in this letter to the church at Ephesus. The first section is found in chapters one through three. And in this section, you could say that, God, that Paul essentially lays out gospel doctrine, the wonderful truth. And then in verses, chapters, sorry, four to six of the book, the shift, he makes a shift and looks more at behavior. What, in light of this truth, what then does it mean for how we behave? You could say this is a section, you could give it the title, Gospel Culture. The first section, Paul's go, Paul goes on for three chapters and essentially lifts our heads to the heavenlies and reminds us of the glorious truth about the good news of Jesus and all that he accomplished on our behalf. I mean, one glorious statement about identity, about truth. This is, this is truth, indicative. We are blessed in Christ, he says. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We've been made alive together in Christ. Once we were far off from God, but now, by the blood of Christ, we have been brought near to God. On and on and on, Paul goes about the good news of Jesus, truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. One glorious statement after another. And then, in chapter four, Paul turns to the more sort of practical side. It says this, I therefore, in light of everything that I've just said, all of this wonderful truth, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, there is a walk, Paul says. There's a way of living that is consistent and natural that flows from this truth 
Verses chapters four to six paint a picture of what that walk looks like. So as whole disciples, this is the challenge for us as a church, we wanna be people who hold these two things closely together. See, the problem is every one of us is wired to sort of lean towards one or the other. Ray Orland's really helpful as he, as he thinks through this a little bit. Some of us are, are, are maybe wired to sort of really focus on chapters one to three of Ephesians, just thinking doctrine, all that matters is truth. And we can neglect the beauty of human relationships, for example. And Jesus, you know, has a you know, pretty harsh word to say to people that are like that in the New Testament. He calls them hypocrites. Those who just hold on to truth, but the truth doesn't actually make its way out into their life. Call them hypocrites, that's what Jesus says. And there's those others of us who maybe sway a little bit to the other side, who we just really like chapters four to six, and we think it's all about, we can sort of poo-poo doctrine and maybe not consider a lot of the truth about what Jesus has said, and just wanna, um, you know, just focus on relationships and, you know, culture, for example. And when we do that, we can become easily cowardly and we can buy into a sort of sentimentalized version of Jesus. We wanna be the type of church that holds both of these things closely together. And when we do that, we are a church that walks in the power of the living Christ, who was described himself as a man who was full of grace and truth. That's the type of person we wanna be. That's the type of church we want to be. We wanna be the type of church that presents the real Jesus to the watching world. Now, it's not just Paul that writes like this. This is the way the New Testament teaches us about the way of Jesus. It's how the New Testament authors speak about practical matters such as ethics and morality. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, which oftentimes we can think that that's what it means to be a Christian, just being sort of good for goodness sake. Have you heard that before? Not just what the Bible doesn't do is just give us a law Pose it upon us without giving us any understanding or basis for why we follow it. But in God's grace, rather, he tells us precisely what our motivation is for living lives of obedience to Jesus, for following hard after him. And what we'll see as we look just at these couple of verses this morning is that our behavior flows from something infinitely greater than just a bunch of laws that have been imposed on us. God wants us to know precisely why we do what we do. Not simply just conforming to a code. Christianity is an intelligent faith. And the grand motive for Christian behavior springs from what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Case in point, Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Let's look at it. I'll read them together for us. And all we're going to do this morning is we're just going to take one verse and then look at the other one. That's it, okay? Two together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Now, if you look at those two verses, you'll see that there's a very simple structure. 
two obvious commands. One in verse one, and another in verse two. Each is followed by a motivation or an explanation of why we follow those commands. Two imperatives, each followed by the indicative. Verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. What's the command? Be imitators of God. That's the command, be imitators of God. Let's just consider that together. This should not be surprising for those for, you know, that are talking about being a disciple of Jesus. This should not be surprising. Discipleship is imitation. The word essentially means mimic. That's what the word means. So this is not surprising. Neither is it a small task. Let's be clear of that. This is a lofty command. It's a crucial command. It is actually the goal of Christian life. The perfect imitation of God. The Apostle Paul tells us as much later, he says, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. If you're in Christ, this is your destiny. It's a summary of the look of a Christian. Right here, be imitators of God. In fact, this is what mankind was designed to do from the very beginning. Genesis 1 says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Adam and Eve were, you could say, the first imitators of God. As God chose himself throughout the Old Testament, as you keep reading, you see that God chose for him a unique people, the people of Israel, he commanded them to be holy as I am holy. They were to not just belong to God, they were also to look like God. This is a key part of God's strategy in making his glory known to the world, to set aside a people that were for himself unique and that would image himself to the world around them. And Jesus comes along and guess what? He says, you should be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So this idea of imitating God is tightly connected to our identity as the people of God. Now, we know if, we, if you've studied God much, you know that there are some attributes about him that, that we can't imitate. These are called the incommunicable attributes. Attributes such as God's omnipotence or his omnipresence, his eternity. He existed from eternity to eternity. There are some parts of him that we can't image, but there are a whole lot of other parts of God that we can. These are called his communicable attributes. Parts of him that we can look like. Examples, his love, his justice, his kindness, his mercy, his truth, his grace, his compassion, on and on we could go. There's a lot that we can imitate about God. And this is part of what humans do. 
This is part of who we are. We are, as just human beings, creatures who imitate the world around us on some level. When I was growing up, there was a popular commercial. This is gonna date me maybe slightly. That's okay. My gray hair probably does that well enough on its own. There's a Gatorade commercial featuring, anybody know the, who is the sports person to feature? Anybody know which commercial I'm talking about? Michael Jordan? Anybody know the phrase, the song, anybody? Be like Mike. There it is. Be, in the back, thanks, Mobley. I can always count on you. Be like Mike. Gatorade, selling Gatorade. They understand that we are, as people, everybody, when I was growing up, if you played basketball or had any appreciation for the sport, guess who you wanted to be like? Michael Jordan. I can remember taking VHS tapes of, he would have all these different, just all these different videos that they would put out, and I would just watch them for hours and then go in the driveway all day long and try to mimic his jump shot, which I could do, you know, with some degree of success, I'd like to think. But, um, his dunking ability, not so much, all right? We all have our own limitations. Um, but Gatorade understood that we are people who, who imitate. And what they were hoping to sell us a product on is if we could get behind sort of mimicking Michael Jordan, it would mean that we would drink what Michael Jordan drinks, Gatorade or smoke cigars before his games. Hopefully, they, they, I don't know if cigar companies were trying to sell that or not. That was an interesting, interesting discipline he had. But this is who we are as human beings. We are people who copy one another. If you're a guitarist, you, you study great musicians, or a pianist, you study great pianists. Growing up, I spoke a lot like Jerry Seinfeld because I watched a lot of Seinfeld. As human beings, we are imitators, okay? That's who we are, it's in our DNA. As Christians, what is our calling? To imitate God. Why? Why do we imitate God? That's the command. Now look at the grace in his God's grace, he gives us the motivation. What is it? It's right there. Because we are beloved children we are beloved children. This is a theme that Paul writes about before he gets to chapter five and verses uh, three and six of chapter one. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And he goes on in chapter two of verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As Paul wants the church at Ephesus to think rightly about their relationship with God, he speaks in terms of a family. You are children in God's household. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, if any of you have been around children much, do you know what you do not have to instruct a child to do? Imitate. It's what they do. It's how they learn to speak. It's how they learn to walk. It's how they learn to eat. It's how they learn what they like, what they don't like. They imitate. It just comes naturally. Some of us as parents have found this out the hard way. <laughs> if we don't understand this about how we relate to God, then we are missing the whole point of Christianity. As Christians, we are believers, but we're not merely believers. 
We are forgiven, but we're not just forgiven. To be a Christian is to be born again, placed in a new family, family of God. J.A. Packer sums up Christianity in a single phrase, knowing God as your father. That's what Christianity is. He goes on to say this is essentially the, the whole point of the Bible and it is the climax of it. We are, if you're in Christ, God is your father. You're a part of his family. Consider what it means to be born, to be a, a child of God, a partaker of the divine nature, born from above, born of spirit. At our very core, we are beloved children. Children who are not simply in a unique legal relationship with God. We are beloved. We are loved children. He is a loving father who gives himself and shares himself with us. He cares for us. He wants us. He loves to spend time with us. He cannot wait to see us. He rejoices when we rejoice. His heart breaks when our heart breaks. He makes himself accessible always. He has loving concern for us. He has an intense personal interest in you if you are a child of God. And therefore, motivation in all of life should be to please a God like that, to imitate a God like that. He's a good, good father. So you see, our being a child of God should just naturally produce doing, imitating him just as he is. That's what verse one says. Now look at verse two. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See the command there? Walk in love. First one we saw in verse one, be imitators of God. Now it says walk in love. I love the fact that it does not say sprint in love. If you're over 40, you know what I'm talking. Have you tried sprinting if you're over 40? I tried it recently, bad idea. Like it just doesn't go well, all right? It says walk in love. You could try to sprint in love. It would require effort. You could do it, but it wouldn't last long. Paul says walk in love. Shouldn't be occasional, shouldn't be short-lived, or leave you catching your breath, like sprinting. It should be constant. Steady, natural, like walking. The best part, anyone can do it if you're in Christ. Love is presented here as ordinary. It's not for super Christians or seasoned Christians. Love is, be sure of it, the unmistakable sign of Christianity. It's the ultimate look of being a Christian. God 
Bible tells us as much, is love. See that in 1 John. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So you see, for the Christian, love is not an option. In fact, Jesus sums up the whole law in terms of what does God expect from us with one word. What is it? Love. Not only is it not optional, but love is totally, totally powerful. It's the way, in fact, in which that we image our Father to the world around us. By this, all people will know that you are my my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So as we consider what does it mean to imitate God, to look like God, to image him to the world around us, what Jesus is telling us is the best way that you can do that is by mimicking the love of the Father. You want to give people a sense of what God is like. You walk in love. You show them love. And he goes on and he tells us what is our motivation. That's the command, walk in love. The motivation that's right there is Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is not just the model of our love. He is the look of perfect Love. He's the reason for all of Christian love. For he did, uh, for what he did for us is the ultimate act of love, the ultimate demonstration. And because this is true, Paul tells us that right living flows from right thinking about the truth of love. Not just how deeply we've been loved, but, or how deeply we love, but how deeply we've been loved by God Himself. Christ's death on the cross, his sacrifice, not only brings us back to God, but it shows us just what he thinks of us. It's a deep love, a constant love, an unstoppable love. And the more that reality sinks in, how deeply loved we are, what it would cost God, giving up his own son, how much more that should make us want to walk in love as well. Being a people who love begins by understanding we are a people who have been deeply loved by God. You see how it works? The look of our life, the the culture that we sort of have here at Parkview East, it comes from deep, deep truth glorious truth about who God is and what he has done. The the activity comes from an understanding of our identity. Being comes before doing. Now, rather than, what I kind of wanted to avoid this morning was, you know, oftentimes when I preach, I'm always thinking, practically speaking, what does this mean for us? And what I want to do is I want to resist the temptation to leave you with three or four do's or don'ts. Rather, what I want us to do is to simply dive deep into understanding God's love for us. 
I was just thinking about this um, idea of imitation and love and or motivation for being like God. It just made me think sort of of my own experience as a parent. And if you're here this morning and you have kids, maybe you can relate or identify in some way, shape, or form. See, the reality of being a parent, no matter how awesome your children are, I got some pretty awesome kids, okay? No matter how awesome your children are, they are never totally obedient. They aren't. There are times just in raising your kids where you're like, oh my goodness, is that what I look like? Are they learning that? Certainly, that's my wife. They're getting that from my wife, right? That's not... That's not me, okay. Um, I mean, there's times in life, just in parenting, when you, know, you experience moments when their behavior isn't quite consistent with what you're aiming for. Now, let me tell you what does not happen in our house when a kid maybe steps out of line. Here's what doesn't happen. That's it, I've had enough, you're out of here. Take those shenanigans somewhere else. You're no longer a part of this family. This never happened. The fact that my kids are here on a Sunday morning is not evidence that they're perfect children. It's evidence that they belong to a loving family. That their identity as a part of that family is not contingent on their activity or their behavior or their obedience. Now what's even more interesting is as you think, you know, just in times where you see your children hurting in some way, shape, or form, as a parent, have you ever just stop and think about what goes on in your heart? When I see a child struggling, making a poor choice, we'll say sinning in some way, shape, or form, what happens in my heart is interesting. I find my heart growing closer to them. I find my love deepening for them, my longing increasing for them. You know why? Simply because they're mine. Just because they're mine. That's why. And here's the deal. Same is true for God. I believe the Bible is very clear about that. Time and time again, as his people, do you know what we're pretty good at doing? Dropping the ball. He's faithful even when we're not. We sin, we make mistakes. Even if you just think back to this last week, there were probably moments in your life, maybe thoughts that you had or words that you said or things you did or left undone that did not look like God. They didn't imitate him perfectly. And do you know what God does not say in those moments? If you're in Christ, if you're a part of his family, do you know what he does not say? Enough of you. I've had it. These shenanigans, no more. You're out of here. Doesn't do that. Instead, you know what happens? Romans 5.20 tells us that when, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. For those who are in Christ, who belong to his family, 
Guilt and shame are outstripped, disarmed, outmatched by his abounding grace and love. His heart grows increasingly more for his people. When they are broken, when they are hurting, when they are stepping out of line, his love grows more and more intense for us in those very moments. One author recently wrote it, put it like this. It's not, don't get it twisted. It is not our loveliness that draws God's heart to us. As good and lovely as some of you are, it's actually our unloveliness. That's amazing. And that's good news. You know, my hope as a parent is that, you know, and I can't do that perfectly. Nobody here can. But as we try to do that as parents, the hope is that your children see that. And their response, oh my goodness, my mom didn't kick me out of the house when I said that thing or did that thing, should actually cause the child to want to draw closer to the parent, to obey the parent, to see the parent as a good parent who loves them. The hope and prayer for our motivation as we step into this topic of discipleship, this sermon series, is that the same would happen for us. That we would see our doing. We're gonna talk a lot about the commands, the challenges of Christ, because there are plenty. But we will see that our motivation for following his commands springs from a deep well of understanding of his love for us and who we are in Christ. Deeply loved. Deeply loved. Being comes before doing. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we... Um, we long to be a church that glorifies you, Lord, by making much of you in all of our life. And I pray that that would start even just today, this week, by understanding, by reflecting on, by considering how much you love us as your people. God, you're so good to us. We have so much to be thankful for. And I pray Lord, now this morning, that our obedience to you, Lord, that it would, it would come from a place of understanding who we are in Christ, how deeply blessed we are in Christ. Help us to see that, believe it, and respond naturally to it. We ask these things. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.